This is Global Ambitions, your 15-minute window into the minds of localization and international go-to market experts. Discover how they respond to their biggest challenges. Here's today's host. Hi, I'm Antoine Ray, and I will be your host today for this Global Ambitions podcast episode. And today, my guest is Soren Eberhardt, and Soren is a global site manager at Microsoft in Seattle. And today we'll be talking about Microsoft's 365 local adaptation. Soren, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Can you share with our audience there what is being done by uh, Microsoft 365 beyond just localization of content to reach and convert more Microsoft users into regular buyers? So, yeah, as you said, uh, we want to make visitors to our Microsoft 365 pre-sales pages, people who actually buy and don't just visit. So we need local marketing appeal. And for that, well, the first step is always having things in the local language. We all know that. That's why we have the language industry. But the second step is actually also adapt certain pieces of the pages looking at maybe there's market-specific messaging that we can use. Maybe there's even market-specific imagery. There's things where certain markets prefer, for example, contacting pre-sales support on the phone. So is that something that we want to highlight for specific markets as opposed to other markets? So it's really looking at where can we do what we call marketizations, where can we optimize individually for certain markets? So, and you're doing this across the uh, range of products that are available on MS365, like so from all the Office suite as well as other products, I guess, right? So we have a specific set of products. Okay. So what I was working on, what I've been working on mostly is Microsoft 365, the different, different business SKUs. We also have consumer SKUs and then the enterprise SKUs. So it's a pretty broad range of products, but I've been working on a specific set to really focus our efforts there. And when you're saying then you're looking at adaptation of content, whether that's like graphics, like images or colors, or as well as content, I presume there, are you completely transcreating there or however we define transcreation? So I wouldn't say, well, actually for the, content on the textual side, yes, we do transcreation and we do that instead of mere translation. We have, of course, certain limits set by the overall branding of Microsoft. I've never had the chance to, uh, yes, I I would have liked to to test out, for example, like a very Japan-specific page. We know that Japanese web pages are a lot denser in terms of information than the ones we create in the West. We haven't gone that far, but especially on the on the content side. So one example that I can can give is, for example, that for an Australian user, GDPR, the European privacy rules are not really that relevant. For a lot of European small businesses that are buying our products, it's it's a really relevant question. And we know that for specific markets within Europe, Germany, and France, it's even more important. So we tested that. We had A-B tests where we looked at new people engaged with that content and also does it change their purchase behavior. And we could see that if we have specific messaging around GDPR in Germany and France, that yes, people feel more that they can trust trust our products to help them with GDPR regulations. 
And when you're doing A-B testing, this is like, are you tracking the results of that and changing things accordingly there? How does that work? How do you, how do you track and measure uh, the success of that? Yes, and since probably not everyone listening to the podcast is familiar with A-B testing, it's gotten more common. It's gotten much easier because we have tools that are easier to use for that. But just the, the general concept is that you present a changed variant of what you have regularly to a certain set of users. So for an A-B test, you would basically go 50-50. So 50% of your users see the experience that you've had and 50% see a changed variant of that page. And you shouldn't make too many changes because then you don't really know what is it that actually changed behavior. Mm-hmm. So you have a hypothesis and you basically have a key metric or a set of metrics that you want to measure. You want to see what is that A-B test really doing, right? When when you change, for example, as we've done like a header on a page, what does that impact? So since on our pages, we really want people to buy and try our products that are easy metrics for us. Of course, you can also have an A-B test where you just check, do people engage more with a, with a given page or even just with a link? And that's something that you basically need to have in advance and you need to have, you need to be able to, to pull those data. And so my team has had a really successful A-B testing program for a few years now. And we've been running a lot of local tests. Sometimes we find out that something that works in just one market that we can actually extend that and we can even say, hey, maybe that's a good idea for the global treatment of the page. Sometimes it's very market specific. Sometimes it's specific for a set of markets. We know that emerging markets might behave in a similar way. We've often looked at Mexico and Brazil together as Latin American emerging markets. And we could say, hey, maybe we just use a specific treatment in those in those markets. So we would have like a regional regional treatment. And yeah, I mean, the A-B testing really gives you lots of great insights on where can you make those tweaks. And if they are not successful, people sometimes say like, oh, your test failed. No, the test didn't fail. We learned something from it, right? <laughs> we learned that, yeah, we thought, oh, this would be successful, but it wasn't actually people buy less when we have this specific message on the page. Well, good learning. So don't put that message on your page ever. Interesting. And so like when you have the results of those uh, A-B testing as an organization, uh, I'm trying to understand and I'm fascinated by the fact that localization, then this is still a localization sort of a job, right? But they influence that you work with product, with sales, with marketing then to say, hey, we've tested this. This is the result that we've got with here, here is the data, you know. Now make the change. Let's make the changes because that's going to drive more adoption. So you're really influencing sales and marketing decisions in that case. Yes. So we definitely have a little leeway for our international pages. So it's not that we always needed the permission to make a change on a page. But yes, we coordinated strongly with a site management team that is designing foremost for the US, but then obviously kind of the the framework then works for the for the rest of the world. And yes, also with um, the people on the business side who say, hey, you should go with that strategy. And do you do you also measure the the impact of the changes that you're making mainly on the tech side and uh, some of the structural side uh, from an SEO perspective? 
So yeah, for for SEO, it's really hard to to do any testing. You can obviously also you also need to have the data, right? You need to see how much does your SEO work impact impact visits. But that is not my area of expertise. So and I've seen that you've had people talk about SEO that can do that <laughs> much yes. more informed than I can. Yeah, but certainly some of the work that you're doing in terms of adaptation and even changing titles and positioning them in different places will have an impact and, and backlinks and things like that will have an impact on, on yes. the SEO side of things. Yes, and you need to keep that in mind all the time. Yes, yeah, right. very good point that the textual changes, yeah, you cannot just do them haphazard without thinking about SEO. And so how do you ensure, how do you know, you know, when you're making all those changes and I presume you're working across a large set of languages, how many languages do you work across? We have 39 languages, but we right. have a few top tier markets where we focus our efforts. So that okay. makes things a little easier in terms of managing that. As I said, while we also have we should distinguish between languages and markets. We might have market-specific mm -hmm. pages, for example, for Argentina, so people see mm -hmm. things in their local currency. But of course, we use the same Spanish Spanish translations that we use for for other Latin American countries. And so we have, yeah, we have this differentiation between markets and locales. Uh, but so with that many locales there and markets there, what's the geo political awareness of the team there how do you ensure you don't or you you don't offend sorry um local communities or how does that work yeah that is a that is a very tricky one to to be culturally aware and and make sure i i would say that microsoft overall has a really good systemic knowledge that yeah you should make sure that things are suitable for global markets from the get go but there's always those things that slip through. And we've had the strength of the team that I'm working in is that we have people in local markets. So it's been been easy to run certain like new campaigns, completely newly designed pages by some of our local, what we call in-market PMs. And they could give feedback for some of the, yeah, of those top tier markets. And yeah, things Things happen where like, you have to be careful with the use of tattoos in Japan. An image slipped through. Our Japanese in-market PM caught that in time and we could change it. So, yeah, it's not that we have people that know for every single market on, on the planet what might be offensive. But we have good general guidelines. And I, I think that is what you, what you need to have in place, right? You need to have a little bit of a, of a review system in place, but you also need to have those general guidelines basically identifying where should you be careful. If you really don't have to, don't put flags or maps in your images, things like that, because those can be super sensitive. And then you really need to vet in detail what can you show where. And then you might have a market like Morocco or Argentina, where there's territorial disputes with other countries, right? And right. Um, then you really have to go into, into that level of detail. So just knowing in general what is something that might be tricky, do you really need to use that to illustrate your products and to entice people to buy something? Not the neatest thing to navigate across 39 uh, languages, <laughs> probably, and, and more markets uh, behind that there. Um, and like, so overall, like over the, the last number of years where you've been doing this, I, I presume you've, you've gathered a lot of metrics, you've learned a lot of things along the way, sometimes got it wrong, sometimes 
got it right, and but every time learn something along the way. Do you have like some sort? Do you create, do you track and measure data? Do you have some sort of a dashboard that you use to to show uh, adoption, to show progress in a given country uh, based on the work that your team is doing? Yes, and in a in a way, so I'm I moved into marketing localization a little bit over four years ago. I've been doing localization for over twenty five years, but I was mostly involved on the software side, and it was. In a way, it was very refreshing for me to suddenly have all these very strong metrics. When you're working on software, yes, you can track usage. A lot of things that when I started my career, we didn't even know how many people would use one language version. Now there's a lot better metrics in place. But when you're working in marketing, you can you can look at sales while we're looking at purchases and also trials and then how many trials convert. That is something that's, that's very strong metrics. And when we slice and dice those by markets, we can very easily see the so-called funnel, right? How many visitors mm -hmm. come to the page and then how many people buy, uh, how many people click on that buy button, but then also how many people actually go to the, through the whole purchase process and how many people end up with our product. That's normally not where it stops. We also look at how many people drop after a while, how many people use our products. But I would say that just having those really, really strong metrics of sales is something that helps us to stay very focused because we know there, there are numbers attached to our work and we can obviously also show very well, like with A-B tests. Yeah, we just, we deviate from that English English header on one of our main pages, but we can prove like, oh, that brings us that much more money, and that is always a convincing argument, right? When you talk to, <laughs> to marketing people, when you talk to the business side of the house, they will not ignore localization any longer when it brings them clear numbers in, in sales. And that's the beauty of uh, nowadays having access to all that information that we didn't have when we had a stack of CDs to install <laughs> NT4 or something like that, I remember at the time. <laughs> so, okay. Exactly. Well, Soren, thank you very much. We've come to the end of this episode. Thanks very much for your participation today. I think this is a very interesting topic to look at the local adaptation of product on a very large scale and on a wide variety uh, of languages as well. So thanks very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Global Ambitions. Subscribe at globalambitions.net or wherever you get your podcasts.